Oh, hello. Welcome to episode 90 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. As always, I am joined by Mary, a woman who loves to give him hell while taking glorious long runs on the beach at dusk. I am merely a trampled sandcastle named Darren. Hey, Mary, how are you? <laughs> I like how you were trying to get me to laugh. It's no, it like doesn't it, take it's much. Like, it's like it's it pa- no, much. it doesn't. It's like it's Pavlovian for you when we record these that you you're like, oh, I got to try and make her laugh. Oh, wait, I'm doing the introduction. Oh. <laughs> now I got to find something to do. So what's going on? Is we've been a couple of weeks since we recorded yes. in Italy, and now we're uh, here. We are again. Here yep. we are again. Yep, we are back. Happy to be back too. It's been what, like two weeks since we last recorded, so it's good to be back. It's been a while. It's been again. a while. But since I'm, a, I'll, I'll be a gracious host, and I will ask you again, what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking Jetsu from Bellwoods Brewery out of Toronto, which is one of my favorite Canadian breweries. And I am drinking it out of my first Kansas Colored Volunteer Infantry mug, which was sent to us by the awesome John LaRoe of LaRoe Designs. And it, okay. they might get a little bit of a mention tonight, but they are obviously not the focus of our episode. But it was okay. Intrigued. Okay. closest thing I had to the subject matter. Oh, interesting. Okay. I like where you're going there. Very cool. Very cool. So, and and since you... you didn't ask. I well... was about to ask, what what, okay. what are you drinking? Well, I'm drinking Yingling because I'm in Pennsylvania, so I have to drink Yingling. I'm drinking out of my my vote for Lincoln. I assume they mean Abraham nice. Lincoln, this coffee mug right here. So I got that going today because he's sort of part of this episode as well. We'll talk about that in more detail as well. I promise, Mary, this will be a glorious episode. Okay. Ooh. You know what we're doing tonight? We are going to talk about the 54th Massachusetts, right? <laughs> we are. Prim- primarily, you know, everybody knows the movie and all that stuff, but we're going to talk primarily how they came to be, uh, which is a really cool story anyway. The 54th, of course, is famous because the movie uh, Glory mm-hmm. we just talked about. Yep. The movie does take a lot of liberties. It does a good job telling the tale overall. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um the 54th Mass, contrary to popular opinion, was not the first black regiment, Mary. I don't know if you know that. They were not. Okay. The first black regiment was the first Kansas Colored Volunteer Infantry, which is it what was. was on my it mug, was. and that's why I chose it. Very cool. Okay. I know. I see. Okay. But the 54th Mass is going to, it's what it's going to basically be is be a model for all future black regiments that are going to really come on. That's going to really help tilt the war in that union's favor starting in the summer of 1863, right? I think part of the mindset really was, you know, primarily, you know, due to the movie was, was you know, the Emancipation Proclamation. It, it, it's drafted by Abraham Lincoln in, in July of 1862, uh, you know, just a few days after Congress passes that second Confiscation Act uh, in the, mil- the Militia Act, right? So this is, they're freeing slaves uh, who had masters in the Confederate Army, uh, and the North became really galvanized mm-hmm. and really welcomed Blacks into the Union Army with open arms. No, that's not what happened at all. No. That's not the case. It isn't. And we'll talk about that because it's a situation where this was a big deal for everybody. Now, you know, racism, you know, existed in the North just as much as it existed in the South. Both saw that that the African-American race is inferior. That's how they both saw them at the time. In the South, though, that racism was in inferiority really helped fuel and justify slavery, right? But in the North, that racism, what it did is it led to segregation, um, overall discrimination. So it, it really was two sides of the same coin is really what it was. And that's why when you talk about how this whole thing came about, it was a big, big deal sociologically yeah. and really psych- psychologically for both the North and the South. Yeah, it it was. And the, the proclamation is issued on January the 1st, 1863. As you said, Abraham Lincoln declared that all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states are and henceforward shall be free. So it's not ending slavery but it is what changes the character of the war. Um, you know, now the war is about slavery. Um, Lincoln has has made it that way by by issuing this Emancipation Proclamation. But, you know, the acceptance of the African-American men into the Union Army and Navy is not like, they're not like, yeah, now we can enlist and all this other stuff. It's not that way. Just because of the perception, as you said, of the racism that exists in the North, there is a perception that African-Americans in the Army would not you know, they wouldn't be good fighters. They, they wouldn't be able to handle themselves in battle. There's all these just, you know, it, it's basically stemming from the racist ideals, like, you know, ideas of the time. Um, but by the end of the war, almost 200,000 African-American soldiers and sailors had fought for the Union. 
Now, the other part of this is on December the 23rd, 1862, Confederate President Jefferson Davis had issued a proclamation of his own. And this is that African-American enlisted men and white officers would be put to death if captured on the grounds that they were inciting servile insurrection. So if you're an African-American and you're in the North and you're now allowed to enlist, if you get caught, your odds are you could very well could be executed. So I can't imagine how that would have made them feel, you know, but there has been a movement in the North uh, since the beginning of the war by, you know, some people that are saying we want to enlist the African-Americans. And one of those um, people leading that is John A. Andrew, who is the governor of Massachusetts. He's an abolitionist, and he has basically been petitioning Washington saying, we need to do this. We need to enlist these men. But because of the the racism of the time, it's not a popular idea because they thought the African-Americans would lack discipline, be difficult to train, all this other stuff. But uh, John A. Andrew, he keeps at it. Well, he does. And if you look back at the records, I mean, the census records in 1861, just to give you an idea of, of the demographic here, there were four, four and a half million African-Americans in the United States, mostly in the South. You know, 500 were free men, basically split between the North and the South pretty evenly, and the rest were slaves. Um, they were sunrise to sundown, uh, had little way to escape. They had really no way to do anything. Their lot in life was basically cast. And, you know, in the North, and, you know, racism, like we said, was still very much the North. You know, Blacks living up there, up here in the North, mm-hmm. they had very little rights. I mean, despite being free men, you know, some, you know, some sort of black men living in the north was basically like a slave without a master. If you really think about it, right? They had, had strict travel restrictions. Obviously, they couldn't vote. They couldn't serve on a jury. Uh, for the most part, along with the Irish, they were treated as second-class citizens. Mm-hmm. They just were. Now, you know, despite all that, you know, once the rebels fired on Fort Sumter on April 12, 1861, um, you know, they were they were as patriotic as anybody, yeah. and they wanted to fight to preserve the Union. And many in Boston, we're going to talk a lot about about Massachusetts. So they rushed to enlist, but they were turned away, you know, due to that the federal law that dated back to 1792, which barred blacks from taking up arms in the United mm-hmm. States Army. So, and it's important to realize at the time, um, you know, they wanted to enlist just like their white counterparts, but they wanted to enlist to preserve the Union. Even they didn't want slavery; they didn't care about it. Yeah. They just wanted to preserve the Union. In most cities, people signed up due to that anger that someone had attacked the flag or attacked the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And that they were no different, you know, that sentiment was shared, obviously, by Abraham Lincoln, you know, the guy with my mug. Okay, the guy with the hat the guy we the talked hat. about. The guy with the big hat. You know, and his goal it was to preserve the Union. You know, he famously said to Horace Greeley in August of 1862 that I, I, if I could save the Union without freeing slaves, I would do it. You know, he was going to be happy either way as long as he could do it. But, but at that point you can really see the sea change does turn once emancipation comes out after Antietam. But at this point, um, it was kind of, you know, falling on deaf ears. So what it really came down to was requests from thousands of black men who were willing to fight for the union. They were just ignored despite the efforts of people like Frederick Douglass, we're going to talk about Mm -hmm. who desperately wanted to arm the blacks, including slaves. And he, because he felt their inclusion, I mean, was going to win the war. And he's going to basically write, you know, Douglas said, a quote here, let the black man get upon his person the brass letter U.S. and a musket on his shoulder. And there is no power on earth that can deny he has earned the right to citizenship, mm-hmm. right? And that's the key to this whole thing with Douglas. He clearly saw an opportunity for black soldiers fighting for, for the Union as a pathway to citizenship. That's how he saw it. You know, he saw a natural progression that was going to, that was black citizenship was going to basically start with the cartridge box, continue the jury box and finish with the ballot box. That's kind of how he saw it. Right. Mm -hmm. So when that, to that end, Douglas campaigned hard to enlist black soldiers. He lobbied the government. He went all the way to Europe to try to get uh, popular sentiment. He saw thousands of potential black soldiers willing to fight for the union. And, Despite this campaign pitch by Douglas, you know, it was an uphill climb in the North and most had no desire to see black men fight. Like you just said, you know, many felt that, you know, in the heat of battle, one of two things was going to happen. They were going to all of Rodas Howard and take off the first chance they could. Okay. Or they thought they were going to, since they were from tribes in Mm -hmm. Africa, they were going to like somehow turn into these savages and just killing everybody like animals. 
those that was primarily the two fears they had. And don't forget, you had a very strict Napoleonic type of army and, and discipline. They didn't think they would adhere to it. They thought it would turn into the scene from Anchorman, the, the, the street fight, right? And so, but so there, it was really, too, you know, this this was the mindset at the time when mm-hmm. Douglas is trying to make this case. So you can see how right off the bat he's kind of screwed. Yeah, you know, Lincoln's appetite for arming black men, as we said, did change in 1862 when all those Union battlefield losses were piling up like cordwood. Yeah, and many in the North, the Copperheads and other people. We're just getting sick of it. They didn't think it was worth it anymore. You know, so he knew this, but he, he realized that to win the war, he needed to find a way to enlist them. And, and that was part of the rationale, obviously, for the Emancipation Proclamation that was drafted on September 22nd, 1862, um, after that quotation fingers victory at Antietam. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's like, the, you know, can we call it a victory? I guess, I guess we can call it a victory. Well, as close you're going to get. Now, yeah. the proclamation is everyone knows it freed the slaves in the states in rebellion, not the border states. Okay, uh, it all, but it also allowed for black men to serve in the army, and that was the big deal about it. Mm-hmm. The Civil War at that point would no longer be just a, a white man's fight to preserve the Union. At that point, in January first, sixty-three, it was going to turn into a fight for freedom, and that was a big part of it, right? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a little bit ago Jefferson Davis's uh, his own proclamation. Yeah. He had. The idea of black soldiers in the South was a frigging nightmare. Oh, it okay? scared them because there was this thought that they were going to rise up against their, quote unquote, their masters, right? Like, and that was a, that was a huge concern for these well, plantation the, owners down there. Yeah. I mean, you have the memories of the slave uprisings, and, yep. you know, John Brown's raid, mm-hmm. Harper's Ferry, all this stuff is still in their mind for them. You know, they'd held blacks in bondage for generations, yep. and they were scared shitless of what would happen out of revenge with these guys with guns running on. Yep. That's how they saw it. You know, Thomas Sims, he was a senator from Louisiana. He saw the Emancipation Proclamation. He wrote, it is a gross violation of the usages of civilized warfare and outrage on the rights of private property, the slaves, and an invitation to atrocious servile war. So tell us how you really feel, Senator. Yeah, jeez, right? wow. <laughs> so he he was, you know, forget the F this card. Yeah. He, he was he was going all in, He was right? putting it all in. So what do the Rebs do? They're going to vow to return any black soldier they catch to slavery yeah. or basically kill them. Uh, they held the white officers accountable as well, like you just mentioned as well. Um, and so you can see what this must have been like, like a bomb hitting the city. Yep. When this whole thing went down. Yeah, it right. It must rat. have rat rats fighting rat. my rats. <laughs> yeah, it it would have been just you know, and you can't imagine how they felt in the north when they found out they're able to enlist, and then in the south, you know, you have this idea like, oh shit, is this going to happen? So they're they're trying to put in stuff to prevent it from happening or make it so that they don't want to do it, but. It finally does happen on January the 28th, 1863, when Stanton finally gives Andrew um, the order to raise a, a regiment to allow African-Americans to enlist. And that's where he, we he have does. the kind of the, the birth of the 54th Massachusetts is is this. Right. You know, and Douglas knew he, he's going to get his wish. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to he's going to break that seal and form a black regiment. Right. That had the but, but it had he knew that this had the potential to whatever, whatever state did it, a real negative political impact, right? You're just going to realize that. To that end, what does he do? He's going to go to the hotbed of abolition uh, at the time, which is the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts, yes. Mary, and its willing governor, John A. Andrew. Now, you know D- uh, Douglas is going to say, because he's going to be recruiting, he's going to about Massachusetts, we can get at the throat of treason and slavery through the state of Massachusetts, he says, she was the first uh, in the War of Independence, first to break the chains of her slaves, first to make the black men equal before the law, first to admit colored children to, to colored schools. I need not add more. As you know, Massachusetts is awesome, Mary. It is. And this is all those reasons he states, right? So the governor, John Andrew, you know, he was an ardent abolitionist. Mm-hmm. He was born on May 31st, uh, 1818 in Windham, Maine. Trivia, he used to be part of Massachusetts, Mary. Mm-hmm. There you go, Okay. Um, and so he's going to help his own personal history is interesting because he helped fundraise John Brown's raid uh, on Harper's Ferry. He rose money for that in 1859. 
it made him extremely popular. It's about Andrew now. It made him yeah. extremely popular in those abolitionist circles, um, which helped him become Massachusetts' yeah. 25th governor in January of 1861. He very much wanted to raise a black regiment in the North himself. Now, first, Kansas gets a distinction, but this is, this is one he wanted to raise. Andrew had said, he wrote, um, every race has fought for liberty and its own progress. The colored race will create its own future by its own brains, hearts, and hands. So needless to say, Douglas found the perfect dance partner yep. to facilitate this dream with John Andrew. I mean, you draw a match made in heaven with this. Oh, yeah, it, it totally. Like, it, it's it's perfect. And But the one thing is, is when they, they start, you know, so they put out posters for these men to enlist in, in what is going to be the 54th Massachusetts. Um, so, but there wasn't enough in Massachusetts that, that well, came I think, forward. You remember too, yeah. well, sort of, here's the thing too, okay? Andrew, you know, he wanted this to be a model black regiment, yeah. okay, that would incent other states to do the same thing. So what he needed to do was create this all-star team. Mm-hmm. He wanted the right people. He wanted elite black soldiers um, who would train and fight just as hard as white men. Andrew wanted the very best he could find uh, when he recruited this 54th Massachusetts, right? You know, for Andrew, that this regiment, it just had to succeed. It yeah. was no choice at all costs because he needed to disavow those prejudices in the North yeah. about how about black guys and soldiers will fight, right? Andrew wanted freeborn men. Uh, and he, he didn't want he didn't want former slaves part of it because he thought they might be intimidated by the by the Confederates, right? Yeah. Douglas obviously is going to help with this recruiting as well, and he's going to kind of go out just to recruit, uh, and he's going to have to do it secretly and in private too. And one of his Douglas's pitches, he wrote to to his potential um, recruits: "The dawn, the day dawns, the morning star is bright upon the horizon. The iron gate of our prison stands half open. One gallant rush from the north will fling it wide open, and four million of our brothers and sisters shall march out into liberty." Okay, so um, you know, for for African American soldiers, this was their chance to fight for their country, yeah. and for some, to really end slavery, who've been holding their race in bondage, you know, forever, right? But you mentioned before, Andrew did have a problem in at Massachusetts, um, didn't have as many black men to recruit from. Some with little knowledge, Mary, or a skewed mind towards Massachusetts felt this was some sort of racism. They didn't want them. And yeah. that's completely bullshit. No, okay. It, so you yeah, might, totally. might want to read more if you think that. Exactly. Totally. Because, but they just didn't have many. So basically, out of a, a the ultimately they had a thousand and seven members in the 54th Mass. Only 113 came from Mass, the region I mm-hmm. for the reasons I talked about. There just wasn't the there wasn't the, the people to take from no. admittedly. There just wasn't. Um you know, so for that reason, you know, just like the great Ernie Cappadino, Mary, of a league of their own, okay, Governor Andrew and Douglas had to take their show on the road yeah. to recruit. Uh, so they went to such places in New York, Connecticut, uh, Ohio, Indiana, dare I say Canada, they, Mary. They did. There was, I was reading um, the names of the 54th. Uh, I found a website and I kind of went down a rabbit hole reading the names of them and you know there was men from Ontario so um Chatham Windsor and Toronto there was one from uh Nova Scotia but you know these you know and these could have been descendants like or children of you know escaped slaves who went on the underground railway right and now they're they're going to go back and they're going to fight which is pretty cool um but yeah, there's Canadians in this, uh, Vermont, Michigan, all over the place in northern states. Now, there were a couple um, from Georgia. There was one from Savannah, Georgia. There was some that there were a few escaped slaves as part of the 54th, but not a lot because of just how Andrew felt about it, that they might become scared. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think two, two sons of Frederick Douglass volunteered to serve with the 54th as well. Exactly. I mean, you know, he's... Andrew and Douglas are finally going to get that roster. Okay, that that, that full that full regiment. Um, most of them could read or write better than their Confederate counterparts. Mm-hmm. Their soldiers, in most cases, um, you know, a lot of these guys were in the trades. One was a physician. Yeah. One, you know, one was a printer. Um, a lot of them know, were waiters as well and farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, they they all like mm-hmm. you know the, the reading what the jobs were is very very interesting on this one website I found. No, he did, but he has but. Andrew has the potential now to have that that all-star team. He mm-hmm. does. Um, one of the members, a local guy named Eli Biddle, okay, 
he lied about his age to join at age 16 when he was when he was he was a rabble rouser in the city of Boston. Believe it or not, that actually exists, Mary. Right? Oh, I can't. When imagine he was young, that. I know. When he was younger, um, he got kicked out of school because um, he didn't like the way the, the blacks were being treated in the school. He refused to sing "My Country, Tis of Thee," and they kicked him out for it. He uh, he eventually signed up and lied and said he was 17 to join. Um, and one man who you know one man who wanted to join believe it or not, and he wasn't allowed to, was Frederick Douglass. He wanted to join himself. So like you just mentioned, in his place, he's going to send his two sons, yep. Louis Douglas, who would become a regiment Sergeant Major. Sergeant right? Major. Um, and earn the <laughs> nickname, the Lion of the Regiment, they call wow. him. Yep. And Charles Douglas, who has no pearls at all. So, okay, no, no, that's no, the way that, that is. That's but, boring. <laughs> <laughs> but Andrew has his regiment now, but he still needed someone to run it. Now, Black soldiers was breaking the glass ceiling as it was. Yep. So both Andrew and Douglas knew that the commanders were going to have to be white. And they all knew it. Yeah. Um, some of the some of the black soldiers did not like that idea, but they had they had no choice. So for the men, um, the men themselves, they had to immediately win over their white officers. OK, uh, Governor Andrew was the one who got to handpick the officers and he wanted battle tested veterans who hailed from respected and abolitionist families, yep. ones with a strong anti-slavery sentiment, okay? And the guy who checked all the boxes was a 26-year-old local named Robert Gould Shaw, okay? Shaw was a blue blood, okay? He grew up rich and spoiled, okay? He's the son of Francis Shaw and Sarah Sturgis Shaw. Both were hardcore abolitionists. Uh, and they were both like basically living off the inheritance of Francis's father, who left him a lot of money. So they were mm-hmm. kind of like socialites in the city. Yeah. Young Robert spent most of his youth traveling Europe and attending all the fancy schools. Yeah. He drifted from whim to whim and lived his early days as a complete rich, spoiled kid. Yeah. Basically, he was Spalding Smales, if you know who that is. That's I who Robert Goldshaw was. <laughs> okay, well, you might I want to look that one up. Okay? I will. I, he, I found a letter that he, well, an excerpt from a letter he wrote to his mother when he was in, in Europe. And he said, it's almost impossible not to drink a good good deal because there is so much good wine here. This is when he's in Europe. And he was a bit of, um, like I don't want to say loose cannon, but kind of didn't like authority figures and didn't really listen too well. And he told his parents at one point he wanted to go to West Point, but his parents were like, this is probably not a good idea because he had difficulty taking orders and obeying authority figures. Um, He's not the hardcore abolitionist that his parents, especially his mother um, is though. Um, That will come a little bit later, but his mom is like hardcore. The family is friends with Harriet Beecher Stowe. So Shaw did read Uncle Tom's Cabin, and apparently it had an influence on him as well. It did. I mean, his mother, you know, she was she was a big, large um, philanthropist. I mean, she preached abolition of Robert since his early days. Um, and and basically, he got tired of hearing it. And he's somebody who, yeah. like you said, wasn't the most, didn't have a lot of authority figures, I mm-hmm. think. And he kind of did what he wanted to. Yeah. Um, Andrew, you know. Andrews felt Shaw was his man and offered him command of the 54th uh, Massachusetts, to which promptly, originally, you know, Shaw said, nope, no thanks. Because Shaw was a veteran, and after initially being part of the 7th New York Militia, he ended up yep. joining on as lieutenant with the 2nd Mass and Company H. He will, he's going to fight at first Winchester, Cedar Mountain, and famously Antietam, where he's going to get injured. Yep. And he's been promoted to uh, the company's captain, right? Now, Shaw being, being offered command of the 54th Massachusetts uh, he wanted no part of it. He didn't. No. Um, he didn't. Jo- he didn't join. Middle. He didn't join the army to fight for slavery. Okay. He was fighting to preserve the union, like so many people around that. Despite his abolitionist parents, he didn't give a shit about it. He just no. didn't. He saw this command as a huge personal risk for him. Um, he didn't really know many black people growing up that much. He really didn't. Yeah. Contrary um, to what is in the movie. Yeah. Exactly. Some of his letters home included racial epithets um of the day and event but eventually he did come around once yep. he got to got to know them but you know eventually shaw's gonna does change his mind he probably got guilted by his mother and he I, probably got sick yeah, of hearing she it she goes to see him about that doesn't she like talk about like and he's and he's also God. a mama's boy too oh and the only person time. He, he really would listen to was her um and so he he, he is going to take it over he is going to do it and he sees this as a gigantic 
effort, right? His first task is gonna is is gonna be a tough one. He's gonna train a thousand and seven men to prepare them for battle. So mm-hmm. they all get sent to Camp Megs, which is yep. in a place called Reedville, Mass, which is Hyde Park. If you, if you, yep. Very if you, cool. You know. Very cool place to, to visit if you find yourself in Boston. Um, yep. You and I went uh, St. Patrick's Day this, yep. this past only, March. It and still it's really exists. Cool. And, it, and it's just a bugle call from the Trillium Brewery. It is. So yes. you need something to do. It's so a great you can place do, to do You can do some history and then you can go drink some awesome beer. And you can also see Shaw's headquarters there. Although it's that a little true. bit that run down, but it still exists. Yeah. It's still there, but it's just a lot of it's still there. But you know, so once he gets to Meg's, okay, um, you know, he has to teach his new regiment everything: how to march, how to you know wheel formations, load, load and fire their muskets, the whole deal. But he had to learn as fast as they could. Um, and the th- credit to some of the soldiers, they really wanted to learn. They did. Some of the men, some of the men would would had their own army manuals they read on their own, kind of like extra homework. When the when they finished doing their drills, they would a lot of them would stick around and watch the white soldiers drill and just try to get pointers. I mean, these guys, you know, they 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 were in a fishbowl, yeah. and they knew everybody was watching. Well, I think that's the thing is they knew that they like. There's so few regiments by this point. They are the ones that are going to be. I think they know we're going to be well known. People are going to be watching us, and we are kind of the the representatives to show that this can work right and they want it to work and the thing is is how quickly this regiment gets trained like they start you know february 15th 1863 is when shaw arrives in boston and you know training begins um soon after that and shaw is a very strict disciplinarian despite the fact that he doesn't like authority figures he himself is very strict with the men and he was he was determined to train them to high standards. And I think that's also one of these, like, I've got to look good in this. I can't fail kind of thing. Right. You know, for no, sure. I, I think, but these guys really, I mean, the movie glory makes it sound like they're a bunch of, they weren't trying, they were just there and yeah. they were running around having fun. But these people, they, these soldiers were very motivated, yep. you know, to do it. Um, the, the pressure was huge. They, they knew they had to be perfect that the men knew it, Sean knew it, Douglas knew it, yep. and Andrews knew it. Their drills became somewhat of a social event as, mm-hmm. as, as hundreds of locals would come up and mock them and watch them drill, hoping they would just because they, they were intrigued too. Um, they wanted to see if, if these soldiers would actually fight. One person who actually was impressed pretty quickly with the men was Shaw himself. Yeah. This, this, is the, this is a guy who was as skeptical as anyone by doing this. And he was won over pretty quickly by watching his men right mm-hmm. before his eyes. On March 25th, 1863, Shaw's going to write, The intelligence of the men is a great surprise to me. They learn all the details of guard duty, camp service, infinitely more readily than the Irish I've had under my command. Wow. This is not a, this is not at least doubt that we shall leave the state with a good regiment as good as any that has ever marched. So we mentioned before he was skeptical about what they would do if he wanted to do it. He realized that he may have something here, right? Yep. And he was, you know, now that they were the 54th was was completely trained for the most part, you know, they were get they were going to get their marching orders, okay? And they're going to finally get those orders and they're going to be sent to South Carolina. Yep. We're going to talk about ironically the state that started the rebellion yeah. right so bef- before they left okay this was on may 28th 1863 the city had a big parade for them mm-hmm. okay and it's still still a deal now you can still see a lot of monuments about that parade and the march began on boston common and they marched up beacon street towards the state house and eventually to the waiting ship a ship called the the DLA, okay that awaited for them in boston harbor so it was under a perfect weather, perfect yeah. blue sky. They said the 54th are dressed in their blue uniforms, just with their muskets on their shoulders. They're going to march in p- perfect formation uh, up Beacon Street. When they passed 44 Beacon, okay, that was one of the Shaw houses. Yep. His family stood on the balcony to cheer him. On the balcony was his mother, Sarah, must have been proud, uh, his wife, Annie, and his four sisters, Effie, Anna, Ellen, and Susanna. Mm. So they're all up in this little balcony. That's at the house. Yep. They're all watching him go by. Shaw's father was up the street a little bit at the state house. It's the same state house. He's up there with Governor Andrew and Frederick Douglass. And the site of the state house is right across the street from the modern 54th Mass Monument. Yeah, which is that's where it is. Very worth seeing. Um it was it must have been quite a thing to see um in the city this parade. One journalist said uh no regiment has collected so many thousands as the 54th. 
Vast crowds lined the streets where the regiment was to pass, and the common was crowded with an immense number of people, such as only the 4th of July or some rare event causes to assemble. No white regiment from Massachusetts has surpassed the 54th in excellence of drill, while in general discipline, dignity, and military, bearing the regiment is acknowledged by every candid mind to be all that can be desired. Um, this is a, a journalist that attended the parade that day. So clearly, I think people were, were skeptical, obviously. Um, and we talked about how the sentiments were towards arming the African-Americans, what how people would feel towards African-Americans. And, you know, people are looking at these guys and thinking like, wow, um, these are really, this is going to be a really strong group. Um, they're, they're one surgeon, General Dale, he said to them from the outset, the regiment showed great interest in drilling. And so, and on guard duty, it was always vigilant and active. The barracks, cookhouses, and kitchens far surpassed in cleanliness any I've ever witnessed and were models of neatness and good order. Um, and he was just, he was very impressed with them too. Um, and the one thing too, um, that these troops went through was their medical exam that they had mm-hmm. on the outset was very rigid. And that's why these troops are able to be described as a more robust, strong, and healthy set of men um, were never mustered into the service of the United States. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, when they, their march, they continued they, when they passed the site of the Boston Massacre. Yeah. Um, they all started singing John Brown's Body. Um, yeah. And, and it just it just made a huge impact on the, on the city, okay? They're going to get on that boat, the Demolay, and that's going to be shipped up to South Carolina, and they're going to arrive on the South Carolina coast in June, about a month later. Um, the 54th is going to be part of that 10th Corps under Quincy Gilmore's Department of the mm-hmm. South, right? Um, upon their arrival, um, their camp experience was miserable. It just, it yeah. just sucked. They had to deal with the heat and humidity. To deal with the snakes, alligators, oh. rosewoods, clown, swamps, everything was there for them, right? <laughs> Their pickets spend more time looking out for snakes than they did for soldiers, oh. for Confederates. That That's would how be bad like it your was. worst nightmare right there. Like not just snakes, but the humidity. It's, 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 <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot. I mean, it's like, here, okay. You know, <laughs> but, but their high spirits, you know, would be, you know, they, they got squelched when they got some bad news, as soon as they arrived in South Carolina, yeah. with this time politics is going to bite them in the butt, is when, and this is famously in the movie, they got this one right, is when they all enlisted, they were all to be paid $13 yeah. a month, the same as soldiers, white soldiers. And when they got to South Carolina, the War Department decided they were only going to pay them $10 a month and then take an additional 3 bucks for their uniforms, Right. And just like in the movie Glory, the members, they were all pissed off. They felt underappreciated, um, especially since they were being specifically targeted by the Confederate government. Yeah. Um, they all refused to take pay. Uh, the War Department did eventually pay them the same, but it did take a year, and a, one and a half years for that to happen. Um, but it did happen. Um, the 54th was, was, was part um, – he, they were part of the brigade of our James Montgomery. He's an Ohioan, okay? Um, and along with the, uh, the, uh, also another black regiment, the 2nd South Carolina Union Regiment, yep. this there in Alfred Terry's division. Now, this is where the movie gets glory wrong, okay? In the mm-hmm. movie, Montgomery is a racist kind of a bastard, right? Yes, he is. And he, he actually uh, was quite the opposite in real life uh, when it came to abolition. So it was mm-hmm. interesting how they... They kind of yeah, took that more dramatic a purposes, bit. you know, and, um, you know, just, you know, just for example, just a few weeks earlier on June 1st, Montgomery helped lead that assault at Kambahi Ferry with Harriet Tubman. Mm-hmm. He was part of that, which helped free 800 slaves in Beaufort, South Carolina. So he was part, he was a lot more than that character was. Yeah. Right. Um, the 54th first action is going to take place on June 11th. When along with the second South Carolina, they're going to arrive at the town of Darien, Georgia. Yes. Okay. Now, Montgomery tasked them to basically loot the town of supplies and to burn it. And it's, at first, Shaw's going to reject it. He's going to say, we ain't doing this. He felt it was but not be... a suitable activity for the 54th to be doing. No, it wasn't at all, at all because he wants to keep that reputation high. It's the last thing he wants. But after being threatened with court-martial, he, he ultimately defines, decides to do it. So they're being used in different ways than ideally what he wanted to use. Well, I think that was Shaw's right? fear is he thought, 
you know, that's one of the reasons why he was reluctant to take the regiment on was because he thought they're not going to get used for combat. They're going to be used for like building shit. Right. And then here they are, they're about to, to burn a town. Now the interesting thing about Darien is uh, Sherman's going to wreak havoc on it um, a year down the road too. Right. On his March to the sea, or Ryan, not the yeah, March to the sea, but in his campaign in the Carolinas. Absolutely. Okay. And it's going to be just about a week from that point uh, when the 54th is finally going to see the elephants, right? As yep. they say, when they find themselves on a place called James Island, a small island off the coast of Charleston. Okay. The site was strategically important because of the railroads and the shipping, but it's also mm-hmm. obviously uh, symbolically important because Sumter in the beginning of the rebellion, right? Yeah, this is the operations that are against the defenses of Charleston. And although like it's not a strategic city in the way that we would think of Vicksburg or Chattanooga, it is still important because it was believed that if they could take Charleston, it would boost the, the morale of the North, right? Well, exactly. That, that it was more like I said, it was very, it's very symbolic, right? So, July sixteenth, eighteen sixty-three. Okay, there's going to be three companies, about three hundred guys, about two hundred fifty guys. Okay, they're on picket duty yeah, at a, in James Island, a place called Grim, uh, Grimble's Landing. And when at dawn, what happens is they're going to get rushed by nine hundred Rebs under the command of Johnson Haygood. He's part of that mm-hmm. first military district of South Carolina, right? Now, the Union Army was they're they're at james island because what they really wanted to do their big fish was battery wagner yeah right they were hoping they would draw some troops out of the fort out of the battery to james to james island as preparation for the attack that was going to be coming on the fort soon later so it was kind of a setup is what they were going to do um in that first ever engagement the 54th was was really was able to stop the rebels Mm -hmm. and they really held their picket line long enough to allow a white regiment, the 10th Connecticut, yep. to basically escape and get, because they were backed up to the swamp. They were in a shitty position yeah. to get them out. Their efforts also allow the rest of the troops on James Island to prepare and get into battle position because mm-hmm. they would have been caught with their pants down, probably literally and figuratively, okay, at that <laughs> point, right? So the 54th here at this point is going to prove themselves, and they fought it just as hard as any white yep. regiment. You know, They lost 43 guys, which is 17%. Of the, the present at the battle, yeah. they lost. Um, their division commander, Alfred Terry, okay, said of the 54th's effort, they were as steady and with strong soldierly conduct. So they were getting some praise. Yeah, and this, he right? wrote that to Shaw as well as in his official report. Um, and then First Sergeant Robert John Simmons described it as a very desperate battle. So it, I think how it's portrayed in the movie Glory is probably pretty accurate. Um but you can imagine that this is the first time these guys are in combat. And, you know, when they got to Charleston, I, I think there was, you know, there was kind of rumors going around that they were just going to be tasked with building stuff or, you know, just kind of doing, not fighting basically. But then here they are and they're basically saving the 10th Connecticut, right? From, from being completely routed and captured. Mm-hmm. And these guys, by yeah. being on the front lines of this, you know, if it fails and they get captured, there's that proclamation from Jeff Davis. They're they're right. screwed. The, you know, you have all that, and it didn't. It and it was not missed on these men. I mean, a first sergeant of the 54th, guy named Robert Simmons, he fought with the British Army before coming yep. over to the United States. He's going to write to his wife on July 18th after Grimble's. He writes, "We are on the march to Fort Wagner to storm it. We have just completed our successful retreat from James Island. We fought a battle there Thursday morning." The general, Terry, um, has complimented the colonel, Shaw, um, on the gallantry and bravery of the regiment. So to, to your point a second ago, you know, he was able to speak to that. Now, mm-hmm. soon after this battle of Grimble's, okay, the 54th is going to, you know, just like Simmons says, going to be ordered further south uh, on the coast towards Battery Wagner. And their march was terrible. They had to, it, was, uh, yeah. it was rained the t- entire time. It took 48 total hours to make this march. None of the men slept or had a chance to stop and rest. Um, the rain slowed their pro- uh, progress quite a bit. When they finally arrived, they were exhausted. They were soaking wet. They were hungry. Uh, when they got to their destination on Morris Island around 6 p.m. on July 18th, okay? And as we know, this is the Battle of Battery Wagner, right? Mm-hmm. Or Fort Wagner is on that same day. So 
they were there as part of that attack on the battery. And by the time they got there at six o'clock at night, okay, it was there was already six hours up into a barrage from 41 guns on 12 warships yep. uh, off the coast that pounded 9,000 shells at the fort already. It and was one of the it, biggest barrages at the time. Um, it was the, it was like it was like yeah. D Day, right? Yeah. That, that in preparation for the attack, but just like D Day, the shelling didn't really do anything. No. And the reason primarily was due to the fort's construction. We've talked about forts. We talked um, for different um, yep. different episodes, um, but the the fort, the way these forts were built, really helped absorb all, all this fire. Yeah. And this one specifically was made out of quartz sand with logs made out of palmetto trees. Um, there was a 10-foot moat that surrounded it that was filled with water um, that surrounded the fort's land face. There was uh, torpedoes, you know, um, landmines yep. buried in the sand on the approaches. Um, and inside the fort, there was a bomb proof that was built yep. that sheltered the men that, during this bombardment. You know, Fort Wagner also had 14 cannon, including a 10-inch Columbiad that fired 128-pound shells. Wow. Um, this this thing sucked. I mean, it was under the command of a guy named William Tolliver, not Tolliver. I know. I was going to um, say that. It's, I was like pronouncing it. I was thinking in my head. I was like, is Tolliver? Tolliver was a former Grand Master of Masons of the right. state of Virginia. Yes. Okay, which is pretty cool. I remember you mentioned um, that it, in another episode. See, yep, I do remember. I do remember stuff. Some, sometimes, sometimes electricity have, makes it. There's this makes it the attic. I'm I impressed. have my good days. You certainly do. He was also in charge of the District of Savannah, jurisdiction of the Department of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. Now, the feds expected about 300 guys in this fort. That's mm -hmm. what they expected. Um, but in reality, there were over 1,200 yeah. um, who were rested and ready to fight. I mean, they've been sitting in this, this fort for a while. And they're, they're in a fortified fort, like we just mentioned, and they're also on the high ground, okay? So if you're a Union guy to get to this fort, okay, just to get there, you had to uh, march through a shrinking patch of sand that got narrower as they went. They had to cross a moat filled with water and then climb a 30-foot wall made of sand, okay? And all the Rebs had to do was just, you know, roll rocks down on my head. No, yep. they would roll down cannonballs, <laughs> light them and roll them. That's yep. how it was. Yep. And there's also like the palmettos have been, you know, they're sharpened as well so and you're also having to deal with like the landmines that are buried and everything else it is not this is not a great position to take it is you know the first one that goes in is is going to be they're going to be screwed and that's it is. that's the 54th that's they're it like is. they're like you guys going you guys get to go in first well shaw's regiment was he they were now part of george strong's brigade in Truman Seymour's division of the 10th Corps, okay? Strong was a New Englander from Vermont, right? Yep. Um, he wanted his brigade to storm the fort, and he asked the 54th to charge it. It was not Shaw requesting that to not happen. They were, they were picked, right? Yep. Strong, is, Strong is said to have said to them, I know you are tired, but is there any man here who thinks he will be unable to sleep in that fort tonight? And all 600 men who were left on the 54th all yell, no, 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 right? So they were all fired up. Strong then pointed to the collar bearer and said, if that brave man goes down, who will pick up the flag? And all the men to a man raised their hands and said, I will, I will, I will. Yeah. That's how fired up they were to do it, right? So it's about 7.30 at night and darkness is starting to fall. When the 54th is going to move into position, they're going to lead the assault, right? So I mentioned before, the ocean was on, was on their right. They had a swamp on their left, okay? As they advanced, the, the, the beach shrunk because the, the water became um, tight on both sides, yeah. okay? Um, the narrow path, what it did is it created a bottleneck. So when you got to a certain point, you just couldn't go anymore. It was kind of like, you know, beltway traffic on a Friday. You just stuck, the right? Worst. The or, worst. Or traffic was. in Connecticut. Oh, God. Or the Canadian oh, equivalent would be the QEW. If I was there, knowing what I know now, I would not have saved the 10th Connecticut. That's what I would have said because they're traffic alone. Wow. So you're on your own. I had a fun ride down here the other day. You got to drive but, the QEW sometime, Darren. No, oh, oh. sounds like a good time. <laughs> but, but when the Rebs, when when the um, the 54th hits that bottleneck, that was the Rebs, you know, dinner bell to start firing on them because that's when they had them stuck, right? 
So they started firing all those cannon at the 54th that were stuck in that bottleneck. Yeah. And it, they, they obviously had not been subject to that fire ever before. Um, men were falling in droves. And almost immediately, they started to fall and break up. The, the hell with this, right? At that moment, Shaw is going to pull out his sword and he's going to yell, forward, my brave men, right? And all the men followed Shaw and they all started running towards the fort again. So he was able to show that personal leadership. Now, just imagine this. He's ahead of them running with his sword. Yep. The men are running to keep up with him. They're going full speed to keep up with Shaw. That's how far Shaw took off, right? The men chase after Shaw and the, the bullets are falling upon them. They said at one point the bullets were so hard, it was like watching men walk through a hailstorm. Oh, they had to slow down and God. lean in and to walk. It was, it was that bad. Um, by now, it was so dark. All you saw was flashes of lights from the guns. They said it was like a strobe light. Yeah. If you imagine, that's how, how, that's how the light was, right? Um, so they're going to keep they're going to keep going though. Shaw himself is going to make it all the way. He's going to get to the wall. He's going to climb that 30 foot wall. And that's made of sand that he's going to yell, rush on boys, rush on. Right. He's going to stay. He's going to get to the very top of the wall. He's going to make it to the top with all the, all the revs in front of him and yeah. behind him is all his dead and wounded men. At this point, he's going to raise the sword once again, and he's going to yell onward boys. And these are going to be the last words he's ever going to say. Yeah, because he gets gunned down. And, you know, some of the Rebs will say after that he his body had been pierced several times, the final one being a shot through the chest that ultimately did him in. But he is going to fall right here. And they say they say a guy from, from North Carolina is probably the one who killed him. Yeah. I don't know how they would know this, but apparently that's what it was. But unlike a lot of these other battles, when, you, when your commander falls, they run. When he fell, it motivated his men more. Yep. So Shaw goes down. Um, the men saw him fall, and they didn't retreat at all. They just they, they charged just kept going. harder up at the wall. Now, now they were pissed off, right? Um, and it's at this moment there was a guy named William Carney from Norfolk, North Carolina. Yep. He was born. He was um he was born a slave in February 1840. He escaped to freedom along the Underground Railroad, found his way to meet his father in Massachusetts, where he joined the 54th. And he, as soon as recruiting started, and he was quickly promoted to sergeant, right? Um, the 54th, for the most part, was in literal hand-to-hand -hand combat in this pitch-black hell at this very moment, right? Carney, he sees the color guard fall, okay? And he's going to, he's going to, this is in the moat now where that water is. He's going to rub and grab the colors, and he's going to have his flag in his hand, He's going to slowly begin to creep up that sandy slope towards the Rebs holding this flag, right? Now, as he approached the top, um, he was hit three times, once on the shoulder and then once in each leg. Oh. Okay, that's where he was hit, okay? Well, he made it to the top, and he planted the flag of the 54th, okay, the colors, okay? He did that primarily. He knew his men couldn't go any further. A lot of them were down. A lot of them were – but he wanted to pin the flag up there as, as to show that they did it. You know, we did it. We made it here. We, 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 you know, I want the men, the white soldiers and black soldiers, everybody to see this colors, our flag on the parapet. And he did it. Okay. And he could no longer walk because he was shot on both legs. So he did finally have to retreat. So he's got to crawl down the hill on his, on his hands and knees with his flag still in his arms. Okay. Um, he's going to make it. He's going to get out of there. He's going to make it to a field hospital. And, and he's going to pass out right when he gets there. But bef right before he passes out, he says, I did my duty, boys. The dear old flag never touched the ground. And then he passed out. It's a pretty cool yeah, story. It is. Um, the 54th at that point, they're going to retreat um, after they make it to the top of the wall. They knew they couldn't hold it mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. So they turned and they ran for their lives. It, was any it wasn't anything yeah, they, less than that. It was a, you know. They had to run. And the, the rest of the night, like um, – Tolliver manages to get some more troops into position. Um, and, you know, by this point, the, the, the 6th Connecticut after the 54th gets run off, they continue the assault. The 48th New York are right behind them. They reach the slopes of the bastion as well. Um, but the artillery just became too much for them, and they're brought to a halt. And Colonel Putnam brings up his brigade, which is just 200 men from the 62nd and 67th Ohio. They reach the bastion as well. 
and you know there is some back and forth hand-to-hand combat at this point but the union attack continues to crumble due to the lack of reinforcements from general stevenson um tolliver is reinforced by the 32nd georgia infantry and they like these troops went over the bastion and they killed or captured the union troops that remained so there is some really hard fighting at wagner that day um and it's all begun by the 54th leading the way to to try and get this fort uh by 10 o'clock the at night the battle's over general george crockett strong was mortally wounded by grape shot when he tried to rally his men putnam was shot in the head and killed in the salient while giving orders to withdraw and as we said earlier shaw is killed upon the parapet very very early in the action and like we said there are confederates that report that his body was pierced seven times with the fatal wound being to his chest no, it's, it's, you know, it mentioned, but the, the carnage is a gray one. You know, he's going to actually survive the war. Mm-hmm. He's going to return here to Massachusetts where he'll become a mailman of all things. He'll spend the next 32 years of his life delivering mail yeah. after that whole thing. Okay. Even with the legs. Now on May 23rd, 1900, he'll be awarded the medal of honor. Okay. Now, a lot of people think or give credit to him as the first African-American man to receive the medal of honors. That's actually not the truth. There was, um, you know, there, there was 22 men who received it before him, but his action that earned it happened before any of those other 22. That's kind of why it gets a little confusing. Carney will ultimately die in 1908. He's buried in uh, New Bedford, which is not far from Cape Cod, if you know the area. Mm-hmm. Um, but that next morning after the battle on July 19th, you know, that tide is going to recede on the ocean there, and it's going to show scores of dead bodies yeah. just littering the beach. They're around the fort. Many are stacked up against that wall. Many are floating in the moat. It's just a bad, bad situation. Now, the rebels are going to come out to the fort to bury the dead. Now, as an insult, they decided to bury the black officers, I mean, the black soldiers in one big pit, Yeah. okay? And the white officers who were dead too, okay? They found Shaw and they stripped him and they displayed his body in the fort for a while. Okay, I don't know what they did with it, but they just displayed it. Okay, just yeah. to, just every for all to see and to mock. Finally, what they did is they brought him out to the pit, the ditch, and they threw his body in first. And they they packed, they piled twenty five dead blacks on top of him. His men, they wanted him to be the, at the bottom of the pit, yeah. and, and that that's what happened. And that was all. And, that was General Johnson Haygood, the Confederate, yeah. that decided that. Mm-hmm. Now, the bodies eventually did get moved to Beaufort National Cemetery, presumably Shaw's with them. Um, the site of that burial pit, is, as well as the entire fort, is gone to erosion. It's mm-hmm. all gone. Um, but in this assault, you know, you had 620 men and officers of the 54th Massachusetts made this assault on Fort Wagner. 20, 272 became casualties. That's 44% of yeah. these men, which is an astronomical number, right? Um and, the, you know, the 54th story doesn't end just quite there. We've talked a lot about it. we talked about a lusty and things yep. like that. But I think, um, but what this, we mentioned at the, at the beginning of this, they wanted the 54th to be the model regiment for the future ones. Yep. And that's kind of what happened, right? That heroism spurred future black regiments like the 55th Mass, which trained at Camp Megs the next year. Yep. Um, and so, and as well as many of the other ones, we saw help, you know, liberate some of these places in the South and help those battles in 1864, um, specifically, you know, so many of these other ones that we talked about. Yep. And that's why it's a, that's why it's a great story it to is. talk about it. Um, it, it I, but, uh, I'd like, I'd like what Shaw's dad said, um, you know, cause you know, Confederate General Johnson Haygood, he's refusing to return Shaw, Shaw's body. And you told the story of how he's buried at the bottom of the pit. Um, and he just wanted to show contempt for the officer who led black troops. But Shaw's dad comes back and he did not consider it a dishonor. Obviously, he's not going to. He's an abolitionist, right? Right? Um, he said, we would not have his body removed from where it lies, surrounded by his brave soldiers, by his brave and devoted soldiers. We can imagine no holier place than that in which he lies among his brave and devoted followers, nor wish him better company what a bodyguard he has. Yep. And so his, you know, his story, he has a monument in, um, in Mount Auburn Cemetery yep. in Cambridge is obviously, he's not buried there, but there's a, there's a, a 
memorial for him there. But it, but the 54th has been immortalized. Obviously, the movie Glory had a lot to yep. do with it. Um, like we said at the beginning of this, too, that the movie does take liberties on certain things. It does. Um, if it, it, it has quite a bit of historical inaccuracies to it from timelines to certain characters, things like that. But again, it does tell the story. You know, it uh, has the, the Carney characters, obviously, you know, um, yeah. would be the Denzel Washington character yep. towards the end. Um, uh, there's just so many, so many different. What they kind of did was take a lot of the soldier stories and blended them into different. Yeah, people they just put them into different people. Matched. And it is my, and we've talked about this. It is, I think, the two of us both agree. It is our favorite Civil War movie. It is, it is an amazing movie. It's an amazing story. But the real story is equally amazing too. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, in, in, there's obviously a monument in Massachusetts at Boston Common that mm -hmm. commemorates that, which is a great monument. If you're ever in the area. I mean, people listening to this, I know you've been there. I know you have. But folks, we went a, there after a nor'easter. <laughs> we did, but it's a great visit to go to, uh, a great, great monument to go to and to visit. So I think I think it's a great thing. You know, their their story is going to live on um, in in just history because again, they may not have been the first, the first regiment, mm -hmm. African American regiment, but they were one that was handpicked by Governor Andrew, by Frederick Douglass, yeah. by by the base of the Shaw family and put together. And despite everyone thinking and maybe even hoping they would fail to end this experiment, they exceeded everyone's yeah. expectations by a long stretch. They did. And, and so, and so um, it's an important thing to study. Um, don't just watch the movie, read the books about it too. Yeah. You have a much better, better story. And, uh, and better, you'll still, better, and the um, thing is, is it doesn't, it's not one of those things where the movie gets ruined the movie is still amazing, you know, but when you read the real story, it's like, wow, this is so interesting. It's so cool. But, but still the movie's entertaining. It's, it tells the story very, very well. Um, but yeah, like both, I think the movie's got its place and so does the real story, you know? Oh, it certainly does. It certainly yeah. does. So I think that's a good place to drop off here. Yeah. I think we told the story pretty well. We so um, as far as the whole thing, so Definitely, um, if you are in the Boston area, definitely check out Camp Meg's. It's a great visit. There's a lot of cool things to see. Yep. Uh, not much left, but there is enough that has a lot of markers on. It explains a lot of, you know, obviously, Morris um, It Morris talks Island, about the Battle Alaska. of Olusti as well. Yeah, it tells their story very, very well with the historical markers really, they really, have there. It really, does. If you go downtown, you, obviously the monument we mentioned, you can still go to 44 Beacon Street. It's the balcony where the family stood and watched yep. them walk by. You can go That's to Cheers. There. The house is still there. Oh yeah, but the um, but all that stuff is still there, and you can you know. And so the story is one the city does embrace. There's a lot of monuments, and there's a lot of stuff you can read. Um, a lot of just a lot of neat stuff you can see. So, all right. So what's coming up for us next? What's new? So we are gonna go on hiatus for a few weeks, probably two or three weeks, just because we have a lot going on um, in the month of August. But we might be back with a surprise episode if we get a chance to record something. Um, we're gonna, but. We're not completely disappearing. We're still going to be doing our Facebook Lives. So our next Facebook Live will be um, Wednesday, August the 3rd um, at 7 o'clock on Facebook. Obviously, Facebook Live. Um, and then we will be doing our roundtable the month of August. We have yet to announce the date. And we might have another event happening in August, too, and maybe something else. Who knows? But our next roundtable will probably be a trivia night because uh, we haven't done one of those in a while. Um but yeah, episode 90. We are now 10 away from 100. So it's awesome. Some good stuff coming down the pike. So so we got a lot of stuff going. So watch this spot for some new things. So any final words from you, Pinchero? Well, thank you as always for being an amazing co-host and bringing it. <laughs> it's Uncle Mary for her YouTube viewers. And thank you to everybody, um, our listeners, for all your support, for joining us for the Facebook Lives, for our roundtables, and for listening to... Um, our silly little podcast that we started almost two years ago. Oh, it's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. So everybody, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Have a great rest of the week. Hopefully this cool, uh, find some, find some libations to cool yourself off. And if you have some time to do some things, go find some battlefields, go find some stuff go to do. Go do some history. Get out, get out the door and find something to do. So, all right. So off we go. Mary, it was a pleasure again, as we said many, many times, as always, all yours. And um, we look forward to talking to uh, talking to you soon. So everyone have a great rest of the week. We'll talk to you all on the other side. See you all later. Peace out.
Do 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 do